I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970? I don't believe they did. Uh, My predecessor in this job hired a man named Charles Grady as the winter caretaker. And he came up here with his wife and two little girls, I think about eight and ten. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family with an axe. Police uh, thought that it was what the old-timers used to call cabin fever, kind of claustrophobic reaction which can occur when people are shut in together over long periods of time. Oh, it's still hard for me to believe it actually happened here. Well, you can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. Welcome to Syndicate, a film and TV podcast. From our screens to your watch list, we gather to share and discuss your next favorite. Join us as we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. And now, here's your host, Armand Haddad. Hello and welcome to another episode of Syndicate. I'm your host, Armand Haddad. This season, we are exploring the cinematic adaptations of beloved stories. Today, we're looking at the film and TV adaptation of The Shining by Stephen King. But before we check into the Overlook Hotel and order a glass of red rum, I am joined by two very special guests. Please welcome to the Cinematic Roundtable, the talented hosts of At The Movies podcast, Scott and Kara. Scott and Kara, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you, thank you. So before we get started on our main subject of The Shining, could you tell our listeners, since this is your first time on the show, what your podcast is all about and how did it all start? Uh, Sure, absolutely. So basically, our podcast focused on the idea of we love going to the movies and we realize that there is a very different experience between watching movies at home and watching movies in a theater with an audience. And we really truly believe that that experience is impactful and it can be life-changing and it's the best way to watch movies. Um, And so how the podcast kind of started. So I guess I should probably preface this with 
Kara and I both worked in exhibition. So I worked for a theater company in Michigan called Imagine Entertainment. And I won't speak for Kara. Kara, you can give your story here in a, in a minute. But yeah, I was, you know, one of the unfortunate casualties of COVID. So of course, once COVID happened, I unfortunately lost my job. And yeah, I didn't really know what to do. But one of my colleagues who was also on the show, Melissa Boudreaux, was able to introduce me to Brandon Jones. And he was, again, someone else who also worked in the exhibition world. And he was putting together an agency, like a marketing agency, that catered to movie theaters. Their goal at the beginning was to be able to create content to deliver to exhibitors that basically were afflicted by the same things that I was. Like theaters across the country had to lay off their creative people, operations people, and the ones that still were being able to function or at least wanting to keep their brand relevant on social media or email, they had no one to do it. So we started creating free content to deliver to exhibitors to be able to help them keep people thinking about going to the movies. And so he approached me really early on before we had officially connected and basically told me, you know, do you have any ideas about how we can uniquely engage with this audience? Because what we really want to do is to be able to tell the exhibitors stories and about why we think delivering movies in a movie theater is so impactful and so important. And so I kind of said like, well, have you thought about doing a podcast? He's like, I think that's brilliant. Like, go ahead and get started. And I was like, okay, you want you want me? Like, I, I'd be the last person to pick to to host a podcast. I'm so like introverted, and I also kind of feel that like ultimately there is a a surplus of you know white guys talking about <laughs> movies on the internet. Like, do we need another one? He said, yeah, we do. So <laughs> here we are. And then uh, we were able to pick up Kara, who has been a tremendous addition to our team. So I will let Kara take over and tell a little bit of her story and how she came to be part of the Film Frog team. Yeah, I mean, our team has a lot of similar stories. I worked in theaters for almost two decades, kind of doing everything from running theaters to booking. Booking was kind of my last gig before the pandemic hit. And as I was kind of looking for a new position, I found the team online, applied, and, you know, these are my people, you know? It was really kind of serendipitous how we all found each other and are kind of striving for the same goals. And now that we're, theaters are somewhat getting back on track, you know, we're hoping to make that final push back to, you know, regular cinema going. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. The idea behind your show is how everyone feels in the film community, like there's something special about going to a dark room with other people and experiencing the same thing on the big screen. Mm -hmm. And even though some of us have awesome home theater setups, it's not the same. And it's, it's quite interesting because like you can recreate it, but there's just something special about going somewhere, going to a place and just having this collective experience together. Yeah, absolutely. It's something we talk about quite a bit on the show is this idea of collective vulnerability and how the bigger the audience, the more emotional currency you 
put into the movie because it makes everyone vulnerable together, which makes the experience that much greater. And so while we love movies and we love talking about movies and we love talking about our favorite movies or dropping movie quotes or movie lines, the goal of the show is to ultimately tell the exhibitors story. So we have theater owners come on and tell us about, you know, some of the struggles they've had with, with COVID, how they've been adapting to that scenario and helping them get their story out as they ramp back up to opening and we get back to a certain sense of normalcy. Right. So with COVID, I mean, we're kind of, we're almost done with it. I mean, we're just we're almost, yes. Like it's been a year like it is now precedented times. It's no longer unprecedented <laughs> times. But do you see any changes to the movie going experience going forward in a post COVID world? Or do you think it's going to kind of bounce back to how it used to be? I do think that the movie going experience that we know and love is absolutely coming back. And I think this is also going to make a comeback stronger because Mm. I think the idea of people being able to watch content at home while convenient becomes stagnant. Yeah. It's not special anymore. Right. You can only binge so much on your couch before you're just like, I need to get out of here. I need to, I need to feel the atmosphere of other people around me. I do think you will see a, a more heightened movie going experience because I think that's what people are going to need. I think they're going to need the movie going experience to also be eventized a little bit because, you know, especially with studios being able to drop their content on streaming right away, like Warner brothers is doing right now. They're dropping all of their, their movies to HBO max. Yeah. It makes people realize that if we are going to do this day and date kind of stuff, we need to have an incentive more than just the big screen and the dark room and the audio and the people, we need to find a texture that is going to bring people back to the movies, but also get them involved and engaged in that process. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think, I mean, the bar is going to be raised for sure. You know, even with things such as like cleaning and stuff like that. I mean, theaters have had a year to kind of perfect how they want their buildings to be presented to people. I mean, I think the days of like your feet sticking to floors and theaters are probably over post pandemic. I mean, the way that operations are handled are probably never going to be the same. Does that mean people aren't going to come back? No, I think it's going to make the experience better. Yeah, I agree. Like I could easily see movie theaters being a lot more cleaner. They're probably going to have more air filtration that are effective and yet quiet to not distract from the film. And yeah, I agree with you, Scott, too, that going forward, it's probably going to be more event-driven. We can easily watch movies at home, but what's yeah. what does the studio have to do to get people out of their living room and into a room? So it's probably going to be like big premiere events or like going out, yeah. and then the movie is like centered around that. So that's going to be... Quite interesting going forward. And we are here to talk about that experience as it develops. So feel free to check us out at the at the movies podcast. Shameless self-plug, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so today's discussion is all about The Shining. And we're both talking about the TV miniseries, which we'll get into. Maybe it's not the greatest thing, but we're also going to talk about Stanley Kubrick's 
film adaptation of Stephen King's book. So before we really get into the film and then the subsequent miniseries, how did you first hear about The Shining and how did you hear about the author Stephen King? For me, I got into Stephen King through my dad. He's a huge Stephen King fan and a huge horror fan in general. So I was like one of those 80s kids that probably watched every horror movie like way before I should have. So, I mean, The Shining was kind of one of my favorites, like from childhood, pretty much. I mean, again, much like Kara, like I was born in 1985. So before I could even speak, Stephen King, Stanley Kubrick and The Shining were already in like the pop culture zeitgeist. So it's one of those things as you grow up, you start to realize that this thing exists that you haven't yet experienced. And that is very alluring to be like, I want to know what red rum means. I want to know what the whole here's Johnny thing, which again is a reference to something else in pop culture altogether, you know? So that draw is pretty strong, especially when you grow up surrounded by it. That's what also led me to start reading some Stephen King and then eventually start digesting his movies. Yeah. I come from a similar boat too. I mean, my parents weren't the biggest horror fans but my friends were so we would go to blockbuster and rent a whole bunch of vhs tapes or dvds and we would just binge a whole bunch of different horror films from like the modern ones at the time to like the classic ones like the shining and what's funny is that i heard about you know like here's johnny and red rum and all these things but i didn't know the shining was created by stephen king I had no idea because I attributed Stephen King to it, the Tommyknockers, mm-hmm. because I had a friend growing up that read his books and was like obsessed with Stephen King. So he would like tell me secondhand what these stories were all about. It was later in life when I realized that Stanley Kubrick's film, The Shining, was from the story that Stephen King wrote. That just blew my mind. I'm like, what? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, that's interesting, especially since they're so kind of vastly different and kind of separate entities now in people's minds. Yeah. And speaking of that, well, in the 90s, there was a whole bunch of Stephen King miniseries that I'll I'll say right now, this might be controversial, weren't very good. (laughs) Not controversial at all. (laughs) And I didn't know that he made The Shining as a miniseries. Well, yeah, the, the miniseries kind of snuck in under the radar in, in 97. But I I remember that was the one Stephen King miniseries that I was able to watch as it was being aired. The Stan, the Tommyknockers, mm-hmm. It, all of those I had to see after the fact. So they, they had already found their place in the quote unquote TV film world. But I was such a fan of... Kubrick's The Shining that I was like, well, I need to see this one that's being created. And, you know, of course, it stays more true to the story that Stephen King wrote. But I do think that it was very lackluster. I don't think that's a testament to the story. I think it's the testament Mm -hmm. to the medium, because I'm not sure how you can take any Stephen King novel and make it made for TV. There's just too much content that is not appropriate for television audiences. Right. I 100% agree because there's a lot of his stories that I really enjoy. Like for example, if you read the Dark Tower series, 
that takes twists and turns that are very unconventional. And would it work as a television series? Probably would want to change some things to make it more, you know, palatable. Yeah. I mean, it didn't even work as a regular movie. Oh, God. Don't even, don't even bring that up. <laughs> but before we go any further, as Jack Torrance would put it, Scott and Kara, it's time to take your medicine. Or it's time for some elevator pitches. Please stand clear of the closing door. All right. For those that don't know, when you're selling a movie to a friend, you really only have 60 seconds to do so. So to simulate that today, I have one minute on the clock. And since I have two guests, I'll be splitting that time between the two of you. Kara, you will start. Ladies first. Okay. I'll give you 30 seconds to start the pitch. And then at the 30-second mark, Scott, you will finish Kara's speech. Are you two ready? Yes. As ready as I can be. 60 seconds is on the clock. We are going to start in three, two, one, go. Okay. Jack Torrance is a recovering alcoholic. Uh, he has a wife and a young son. They are going to a hotel in Colorado. Uh, he is going to be the caretaker for the winter. And when they get there, um, you discover that the son has a like psychic clairvoyant ability. Um, he meets the chef there who also has it. Um, as everyone clears out, weird things start to happen at the hotel. Scott, go. And basically, there's a mix between some recovering alcoholism and uh, cabin fever that basically makes... Jack Torrance melt down and put his family that he loves at risk of possibly death. Oh man, with five seconds to spare, you guys are too good. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure if this if this was a pitch. Scott didn't even do a spoiler for a forty year old movie. No spoilers. <laughs> right. I was going to say if we couldn't give spoilers, and if we're just giving a pitch of why they should watch the movie. Yeah. I mean the pitch should just be simple like jack nicholson that is <laughs> that is the reason to watch this movie is it is an incredible performance by jack nicholson and most of it is you know with facial expressions alone he just yes. looks yes. psychotic in that movie and it's so palatable to horror audiences oh, yeah so you're saying that steven weber isn't as good as jack nicholson um, yeah, I mean, there's a reason he didn't go from Wings to Oscar. <laughs> but I mean, that's not bad. I mean, I think he still works on TV now. I mean, that's a very high bar to try to compare yourself to. It is. It is. But I would also say that Steven Weber's portrayal of Jack Torrance is much more loyal to the character in the book. I yes. think I think what Stephen King's biggest criticism was for that movie was, uh, well, at least for Kubrick's version of that movie mm -hmm. was that it felt ultimately too cold. I think he likes to play with his characters that there's a dark side and a light side. Yeah. Um, and in Kubrick, it's just all dark. There's no reprieve. You don't really see a whole lot of sincerity from Jack mm -hmm. Nicholson's character, but with Stephen Weber, you do. 
he actually brought that relatable father who is struggling with his recovering alcoholism, Mm -hmm. with this cabin fever, with this pressure of having to take care of this great hotel on top of trying to write his next bestseller. Right. And you get that struggle a little bit more with Steven Weber's portrayal, mm-hmm. although you can't hold a candle to Jack Nicholson. You just can't. Right. So in preparation for this episode, I read the book for the first time and I watched the miniseries for the first time. And I do agree with you that the miniseries is definitely a very faithful rendition of Stephen King because Stephen King was so heavily involved in the production. But Kubrick having Jack Torrance being played by Jack Nicholson is like a completely different experience. Like I was watching him emote on screen and like his eyebrows. I don't know. I think it's just his features are very sharp. He just looks psychotic even when he's like just having a normal interview about, yeah, I'll take the job at the Overlook Hotel. (laughs) But, you know, that's why he played the Joker later in life. Yeah. So it is no secret to those that um, are fans of Stephen King that Stephen King really hated the 1980s Shining by Kubrick. He absolutely hated it because Kubrick took so many creative liberties with the story. He has subverted expectations, changed out story elements, like the third act especially. But I felt when reading the book and then watching this movie, I felt like the overall structure was intact. I mean, I believe so. I'd agree with that. Kubrick was able to condense a lot of it down because there there are a lot of aspects of the story that work for a novel. But mm-hmm. if you look at how long that book is, it's it'd be almost impossible to condense all of that down into under two hours for a cinema audience. Kubrick really did a masterful way of, of taking the story and making it his own. And I mean, I think there are a lot of conscious decisions that... You know, like in the book, it's the topiary creatures that come down and attack. And in 1980, how are you going to effectively, in a non-cheesy way, put that on film? (laughs) And changing that to the now iconic maze, you know, Mm -hmm. nothing really tops that maze if you're going to take another route. And what's ironic about that is I would even say that the 1980 version of The Shining the visual effects that they use for that movie hold up way better than the visual effects in the 1997 miniseries. I mean, if you think about like the, the scene with the fire hose that has the teeth and like they tried to do the topiary garden animals and it just wasn't great. What? I thought it looked really real to me. Like I was, I was spooked. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it looked terrible. Yeah. It looked worse than Jabba the Hutt and Star Wars. It was around that era, too. <laughs> God, the miniseries. Like, I read the book, and I absolutely loved it. It was fearful. It made you think. And I was even touched by the end of it. And then watching the miniseries, oh, God. Like, I almost messaged you saying, like, I can't do this. <laughs> Yeah, it's rough. There are some redeeming moments, but a lot of it is just, um, I think Stephen King ultimately just really wanted to see his entire book on screen. That's the challenging thing about making a movie is trying to figure out what the audience is going to connect with, what they're going to deem as important. You know, I I would think that if people were a fan 
of The Shining as a book, mm-hmm. let that universe exist within those pages. And that's mm-hmm. that's fine. You know, originally when Kubrick was, was approached to do the film, it sounded like from what I heard, I wasn't there. I wasn't even born yet. <laughs> but it sounds like King wrote a version of the screenplay and tried to get it to Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. And he didn't even read it. Because he, oh. he works with another person who adapts most of his work. And this is also like when you came to us with this idea of like, oh, we're going to do this whole season on adaptations. Mm-hmm. We couldn't have picked a better combination because Stephen King is probably the most adapted writer in history. Like yeah. most of his books have become movies. And then you have Kubrick, who most of his work he's been adapting for other people, you know. You would think that this would be a match made in heaven, but apparently between the two of them, it really wasn't. I mean, it's interesting to think of that space and time, too. I mean, King was not like a cultural icon yet. You know, The Shining was like his what third, second or third book. His third. Then at that point, I mean, if you sign off on the rights to a film, I mean, at that point in history, you really weren't involved once you kind of gave the baby up it was no longer yours it's not like today where most writers are then producers and are usually heavily involved in whatever is being made of their content i mean back then it was like well you got movie rights so (laughs) we'll see what they do with it basically you know he definitely you know at that point in time did not have the heft that he has now so here's my theory so in 1980, you know, Stanley Kubrick teamed up with the novelist Diane Johnson to write the screenplay for The Shining film. And as you said, Scott. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Left King out. Whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. I think it was a good thing. But years later, when uh, Stephen King has this, you know, clout to him, where he has the ability to essentially do whatever he wants... He was like, you know what? Let me just make The Shining how it was intended to be. 
So I think it was kind of like the George Lucas effect with the prequels, how in the original trilogy, George Lucas had creative differences with like his producers or the creative directors or even like the actual directors of those films. So you had this adversity going on, which ended up making, you know, great films. And then when he was going to do the prequels in the early 2000s, he had full reigns. So he was the sole person in charge. Just like with Stephen King with the Shining miniseries, he was the sole person in charge. He wrote the teleplay for all three episodes. He produced it. Like He even did a little cameo at the end. <laughs> so he was so very involved. And from the first 10 minutes until the end, you can tell he wrote it. You can tell that he, as an author, wrote the screenplay because it was so freaking boring. <laughs> like it was lifted ex- exactly from the pages of the book, which is fine. Yeah. But like, oh my God, you have to like make it somewhat exciting. You, have, you know, you're visually telling the story, not, you know, with words, but with pictures on screen. <laughs> right. I can understand what Stephen King's problem was with The Shining. Not to say that I, I necessarily agree with his mm-hmm. review of the film, but this was his third book, like Kara had said, and he was just starting to you know, see some monetary success from Carrie and was it Salem's Lot that he had written before that? Mm-hmm. This was clearly a deeply personal story to him. I mean, right. he had his wife and kid who was around the same age as, as Danny Torrance, and he clearly was struggling with his own issues of substance abuse mm-hmm. and the pressure of being a writer who needs to top his last book. And all of this came to light for him when he actually stayed in the Stanley Hotel. But apparently he, you know, stayed there with his wife and his son, much like The Shining at the very end of their season. And they were just closing down and they were the only ones in the hotel. And that's when he came up with the idea for this story, you know, kind of interjecting his own personal demons into this story and his own personal fears about being an inadequate father or his struggles with substance abuse. I think this was his first story that he was really interjecting a lot of his personal experience into it. And I can understand having a director like Kubrick, who's so renowned, taking a lot of those personal elements that you had interjected and just throwing them in the trash. I can see right. why King would might be a little bothered by that, but I do think that Kubrick ultimately made a, a way more palatable film. The Shining is Kubrick's probably most accessible movie. If you haven't seen a Kubrick movie, I think you should start with The Shining. But yeah, I can understand why there was some bad blood there, but it even sounds like that some people may even interpret that Kubrick was changing a lot of this stuff during production on purpose and hated King's version of the novel and was even throwing some shade into the movie as a way of kind of saying, this is not your story anymore. This is my story. Like, I'm not sure if you've seen the documentary Room 237. I have not. But it's very, very good. There's whole lots of theories about what people thought Kubrick was trying to say with The Shining. But like, for example, in the book... In the very beginning, aren't they driving a red station wagon? It's or a, a, red... a red beetle. A red beetle. Yes. yes. Um, 
And in the movie, they're driving a yellow one. Yes. And then you can even <laughs> see there's a scene when Dick Halloran is mm-hmm. heading to the Overlook to try to save Danny. There's mm-hmm. that huge snowstorm. There's a blizzard. Mm-hmm. And there it shows an auto accident on the side of the road. And the car that was involved was a red beetle. And a lot of people want to think that that was Kubrick's way of saying, no, like this is not your story. This is my story. I'm not only going to change the elements of your story, but I'm also going to throw a little bit of shade your way and say like your story was basically a car wreck. Well, I've been involved in a few film productions and I could safely say whatever's on screen, whatever is in the camera is deliberate Mm -hmm. and is there on purpose. Yeah, I remember the scene where, you know, it's a semi hitting a car, but I didn't really look at the car. That's crazy. That's Mm -hmm. a red Volkswagen. Yeah, it's totally intentional. Like that's that's like when does coincidence become, you know, intention? So it's definitely not a coincidence. And Kubrick is known for being a very meticulous filmmaker. He the guy doesn't necessarily make mistakes. So anything that is in the frame or not in the frame is there because he specifically wanted it to be. Right. Like he's very meticulous and very much a perfectionist when it comes to his filmmaking style. For example, the famous here's Johnny scene with like him busting through the door. They went through 60 doors to get that shot right. Yeah. I mean, I think the stair scene still has the record, right? For the most takes. It's like 200 and something. 200. Yeah, when wow. she's going up the stairs with the bat, yeah. I think uh, that has the still has the world record for most takes. Wow. Yeah, I was going to mention like the scene in Eyes Wide Shut where Tom Cruise is going through a doorway. He went through the doorway over 100 times, but geez, 200 times going up those stairs. Mm-hmm. So I understand he's a perfectionist, but also could it just be he shoots in burst mode and just picks the best shot from there? Yeah. <laughs> For The Shining, I mean, I do think there was an element of kind of control on set and there was definitely like mind game stuff for Shelly on set, you know? They were awful to her um, Mm -hmm. by design, I think, to get the outcome out of the character that they got. So, I mean, I think that 200 takes was not, you know, was there a big acting change between take one and take 131? Probably not. I mean, but did it break down that character and kind of, you know, make her the kind of shell of a person she was by the end of it, you know? Probably more of that. I mean, was it a power thing over outcome? Well, I wish we could ask Kubrick himself, but unfortunately we, we cannot. Yes, he died under mysterious circumstances. Or diabetes. We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But Yeah, like, it's very interesting. So this season, we've been talking about adaptations. We've been talking about changing from one medium to another and what works and what doesn't. And I've been saying a lot, like, the more faithful you are to the source material, the better it is. However, through our experience with The Shining, just because you're extremely faithful to the source material doesn't mean it's good. And I think that's when... A director like Kubrick, you know, gets involved and creates changes that works for the medium of film. And even though you know, I really enjoyed the book 
And there are moments in the film when I was rewatching it that I forgot about that surprised me. That really subverted my expectations. Like, you know, you mentioned the scene with Dick Halloran where he's coming up to save Danny. And in the book, he comes and he saves the family. He saves Wendy Torrance and Danny Torrance from Jack, who's possessed by the hotel. And it's kind of like this happily ever after storyline that's bittersweet. And in the movie, nope. <laughs> what exactly happens in the movie? He gets an axe to the belly, which is terrible because, I mean, Scatman is, like, so lovely in the film, you know? Like, mm -hmm. there's just, like, such a warmth when Danny and Dick meet each other at the hotel. Like, their kind of connection reminds me of, like, Harry Potter and uh, Sirius Black, where it's, okay. like, misfit kid and finally yeah. has this kind of adult mentor who kind of gets them. And, yeah, I mean, that's one decision that, you know, it was a bummer in the movie, not that it was a wrong decision, but I mean, him just getting the, you know, axe to the belly was like heart-wrenching. And I think it works. Yeah. I mean, it's so abrupt too. I mean, he doesn't even do anything once he comes in the doors. And you have to also remember that in this film, up until that point, there has been no real threat of physical harm. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's one of the things that you need to mm -hmm. keep the audiences engaged is like that they actually are in danger, you know, because when you can talk about things like the spirits that inhabit the hotel and mm -hmm. the mind games they play with Jack and Danny, no one really feels at risk. And that moment in Kubrick's The Shining, when he gets that axe to the chest, mm -hmm. that's when it really ups the stakes. That's when you know that Jack has completely lost it. And it makes that chase scene in the hedge maze that much more weighty and intense because like up until that point, there has been no real risk of like any kind of bodily harm or you know that Jack is slowly detaching from reality and becoming more and more of a psychotic. Mm -hmm. And I even think that that is why the miniseries version also kind of faltered because ultimately they get saved by Dick Halloran. They get to, mm -hmm. they get to leave the hotel and you know, everyone's fine. But I do think that adding that additional savior, that additional protagonist to kind of come in and assist Wendy and Danny kind of breaks the character arc for Wendy and Danny themselves, because mm. the entire time, the only characters in Kubrick's version are, you know, Jack, Wendy, Danny, and the hotel. Those are the four characters you get to see throughout the entire movie. Mm -hmm. And then interjecting DeCalvin's character as the savior, it kind of makes the character arc for Danny and Wendy a little incomplete because they don't get to fend for themselves. They don't get to save themselves, which also I think is important when using it as a symbolic gesture for substance abuse, you know, because I think they ultimately need to remove themselves from that. You would think that if it's just one big parable for this is an abusive father, this is an abusive husband, that they need to remove themselves. They don't need to be saved by someone else. I think that's an important part to that character arc that the miniseries definitely glossed over. Right. It's kind of like a 
I don't want to say it, but it's kind of like a deus ex machina type thing with Dick Halloran just coming in and saving the day. Yeah. yeah. I didn't think of it that way, but I mean, you're absolutely right. Like it does stunt the character development for our main protagonists, you know, the mother and the child as they, you know, defend themselves from, you know, their father figure that's going insane Kubrick's version of The Shining is what people think about when they think about The Shining, whether they're thinking about the book or the miniseries or the movie, that the reason why that one was in the forefront is because he changed the stakes for the characters. And I do and I realize that like one of the reasons why King hated his alteration of those characters is because it was such a personal story. And he did Mm -hmm. want at the end of his book that the father figure who is supposed to be kind of a little bit of King himself has a redeeming quality to him. That struggle that he has with his own alcoholism ultimately kind of gets solved at the end, even though his character dies by his own mistake. Stanley Kubrick definitely created a fantastic film. And the way you put it with Stephen King, I noticed the trend of when he's writing a story, a lot of his protagonists are authors. A lot of his protagonists are from Maine, either Bangor or Portland. And so he is, you know, writing what he knows. So he's putting himself into these stories. And The Shining, it sounds like, would be one of the first instances or the first instance where he put a reflection of himself in the story. So I could see why he would be bothered. I mean, I would be bothered too. Like if I spent all this time creating the story, like that means so much to me. And then, you know, when it goes onto the big screen, it's not what I wrote. I didn't write that. That feud eventually kind of got buried a little bit. And what's ironic is it's actually because of the sequel that came out, Dr. Sleep. So after King had announced that he was going to write a novel to follow up what happened to Danny after the Overlook Hotel, it clearly was optioned immediately. And I forget the name of the director. Um, Flanagan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, basically got Stephen King's permission to kind of blend those two worlds together. While Stephen King wrote it from the perspective of this is a continuation of the novel and how the Mm -hmm. novel ends. The Dr. Sleep is going to be a continuation of that. But he basically got King's blessing to, if we're going to make this into a movie, we have to at least acknowledge the atmosphere and the universe that the Kubrick version built. Definitely have to check that out. So before we go into our final section, I do want to bring up the theme that is prevalent in The Shining, and that is the theme of isolation. So after a year of being isolated to our homes, we can understand what Jack Torrance is going through to some degree. So I was wondering, did you have this in mind when you said, hey, let's do The Shining for this episode? I don't think so. I think it was probably a very subconscious thing, if that. The reason I think I suggested this movie is because it's probably one of the most controversial adaptations that's been made. And I also know that like 
if you want to talk about The Shining, the one person you need to talk to is Kara Leonard because she's, you know, a fanatic <laughs> about it. Um, she's been to the hotel, like she's wearing her Stanley Kubrick production shirt. If you even see in the background, she's got like a Shining poster up. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. I see it. it's signed by Danny too. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sure if if I would be as affected by Cabin Fever the way that that Jack was because I am an introvert. Like Mm -hmm. it takes a lot to get me to get out of my house. (laughs) Like I get it completely though. Like I, like Scott said, I went to the Stanley a few years ago. It was in the middle of winter. I was there Uh for two nights. The first night there was a wedding. So the hotel was packed and it wasn't that spooky. I mean, I went into the restaurant and they also filmed Dumb and Dumber there. So there was like a lot of Dumb and Dumber memorabilia. So I'm like, this isn't that scary. Like there's Dumb and Dumber stuff, like whatever. And then the second day, the wedding was over and everyone in the hotel left. Like I think every guest except for me and my husband was with that wedding party. And so the second night, the place was empty and it was the dead of winter you know, we talked to the workers there who said that they do often get snowed in and have to, you know, spend a week at work, which sounds terrible. And that second night, I mean, the place was creepy. I mean, it was snowing out, like the vibe was there. So, I mean, I totally get the like stir crazy. I, and I mean, I think the kind of snowed in on a mountain part of it definitely kind of adds to the isolation stir craziness because you don't have the option. So, Kara, I have to ask, since you've actually been to the hotel that inspired the movie, I heard that the carpet is not the same. Is that true? Oh, yes. No, the carpets aren't the same. Most of everything are not the same. The exterior shots are at another hotel, the Timberline in Oregon. So the exterior doesn't even look the same. I mean, it's literally just the inspiration. So, I mean, they filmed the miniseries there, so not as cool. But I mean, it's still the hotel where King stayed and was affected and ended up writing the story. I mean, I mentioned Dumb and Dumber. Jim, There's a story where Jim Carrey stayed one night and apparently something happened that he won't talk about and he would not step foot back in the hotel. Oh, he saw when a they, ghost. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Wow. So I mean, well, yeah, yeah, a lot of, I mean, there's no, you know, maze. I think they were actually, when I was there working on building a maze, just because I'm sure every person that checks in asks where the maze is. Mm. As far as movie to hotel, there are not a lot of, you know, similarities other than the overall vibe. Mm-hmm. So what I've heard about the production side of it is that for most of the interior shots that they had to get, Kubrick basically built the hotel inside a soundstage, which is where you can get a lot of this sense of impossible architecture. Like the initial scene when Jack Torrance is interviewing for the job with Allman, the camera kind of follows Jack around. And once he goes into Allman's office, there's a window behind his desk that shouldn't be there because there should be a room on the other side. And so Apparently, all this was done on purpose by Kubrick's design because he wanted people to feel like, oh, he just walked around this corner and now there's a window there that shouldn't be there. But people don't pick up on it visually. It's only hinted at the atmosphere of it. And the same thing with Danny riding his big wheel around that great grand ballroom. Mm -hmm. Like he makes turns that should basically put him in a circle, but it doesn't. 
it takes them to a completely different place in the hotel. And this was all apparently a lot of interjection on Kubrick's part just to give that feeling of confusion. And Mm -hmm. maybe it's not picked up on immediately or literally, but it is there and it does create an atmosphere that clearly wasn't captured in the miniseries. Wow. Yeah, you didn't notice, but your brain did. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> that's how you know Stanley Kubrick is such a directorial genius and auteur, like because he can have that, you know, foresight to be like, I want to create a sense of unease, and best way to do that is to have these trickeries in the background that aren't in the forefront, but your, you know, your mind is reading the information. And you're getting this sense of like, oh, something's not right. It's creepy. The documentary is really, really great. I mean, some of the some of the theories are pretty off the wall. Like apparently a theater back in the day had experimented with the idea of like, what if we were to project the image of the movie twice? And so we'll have one version of the film running forwards and one version of the film running backwards. And we're going to overlay them on top of each other to see how those images relate throughout the whole duration of the movie. And so people would actually find like these images of key moments in the film that are overlaid, you know, basically mirrored of the timeline Mm -hmm. of why it suggests something specific about that which is again a pretty insane idea but i mean not impossible that kubrick intended that i doubt it but yeah it's really really good i would definitely recommend checking it out definitely gonna check that out and i can understand why directors like him remain silent because there's this mystique that you create when you create films like this like is this what you intended not saying Mm-hmm. Oh my God, that means he did. I mean, it does make the viewing experience better. I mean, if it's just cut and dry and everything's explained, I mean, is your mind really going to do a deep dive on it? Exactly. Like before I read the book, I watched the movie, you know, I watched the movie before and I felt like I didn't really know the backstory. So I'm like experiencing it like an A24 movie. Like, oh my God, <sighs> this is so aesthetic. Do I understand what's going on? No, I'm just feeling the vibes. And then after reading the book, I'm like, oh, now I understand like what's going on, the backstory (laughs) and stuff. Right. I mean, it's funny you say A24. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. an art film, essentially. I mean, Mm -hmm. the trailer work is. Yeah, I mean, the trailer was blood flowing out of an elevator. I mean, imagine in 1979 or 80 going to a theater and just seeing a trailer of blood coming out of an elevator, and that's it. You'd be like. Okay, cool. I mean, these days, just like you said, I'd think it was an A24 film and I'd be stoked for it. (laughs) (laughs) So The Shining is spiritually the first A24 film. (laughs) I would say all of Kubrick's films are basically as mainstream as art house can go, you know, because he is a renowned filmmaker and all of his movies are beloved. He's an artist. He's trying to make a statement about something very specific and using this medium as a way to craft that message, not necessarily create a three act structure that has the right pacing or the right, you know, um, character arc and stuff like that. He wants to create a piece of art and 
all of his work has always been reflective of that. So yeah, you could say in spirit that he was, yeah, the first mainstream art house director. I dig it. I dig it. So yeah, thank you for that recommendation for that documentary. And speaking of recommendations, it's now time to end the show. And what we like to do on Syndicate is the one reason why. So starting with you, Kara, what is the one reason you would give somebody to watch The Shining? I would go on Atmosphere. A hundred percent. I mean, we've used that word a couple of times. The feeling when you're watching The Shining, I think is unmatched by like any other, like, I don't know another film that makes me feel the way I feel when I watch The Shining, when it comes to the music, the dread, the acting performance. Yeah. Atmosphere as a whole. I agree. I think the miniseries atmosphere is top notch. Yeah, no, I'm I mean, just kidding. <laughs> so, like yeah. you said, it's flat. I mean, flat is mm-hmm. the word. I mean, King is a master of his medium, which is writing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Very well put. The film has top notch when it comes to atmosphere. And you, Scott? I mean, I would almost want to flip that question around and be like, why haven't you seen The Shining yet? It is, <laughs> it is so iconic. It has its its place firmly cemented mm-hmm. in the pop culture lexicon. Mm-hmm. So what have you been doing with your life besides watching The Shining? Because there are so many things that have come after this that The Shining clearly had an influence on that you probably already appreciate. So why not take the time to respect where that inspiration came from and where have you been living that you haven't seen the shining yet? I mean, it's been out for, you know, 40 years, like get Mm -hmm. on it, man. (laughs) But if I actually had to give a real answer, my answer would be Jack Nicholson. That is one of the main reasons to watch Mm -hmm. that movie. Like his performance is outstanding. What's crazy is like, you know, he was in films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest where he's supposed to play someone who's a little kooky, who's a little eccentric, but he just blows the doors off of it in this movie where like you really feel that sense of pressure and lack of remorse and a man who is just barely holding on to reality. Any character type that has followed that role that is similar to it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to Quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. He clearly created like an archetype for that role, a man on the edge of insanity, basically mm-hmm. in the grips of, you know, his own mental anguish. Like he just nails it. I mean, I don't want to make that sound like that's the only reason to watch the movie. There are mm-hmm. several. There are several reasons to watch that movie, but <laughs> it is my my go to reason why that movie is so impactful to me is Jack Nicholson. Wow. And we end where we began with Jack Nicholson. Yeah, like, it feels like this film was created for him. Like, like you said, like his acting chops really shine when he personifies, like you said, this character archetype where this man is on the brink of insanity. And Jack Torrance is that character. And Jack Nicholson elevates what the book started and just takes it to a whole nother level, you know, not to discount Shelley Duvall. She, I mean, let's be honest. She wasn't even acting. She was actually terrified (laughs) when making this film. It is unfortunately like, again, I think her, I mean, I know you're trying to wrap the show and we keep on diving back into it, but like, (laughs) I, um, unfortunately I kind of think that like Shelley Duvall's character was rather was rather flat. Maybe that was done for a reason. Maybe that was so viewers could very easily interject themselves into the position of Shelley Duvall's character or Danny, uh, Danny's character. But both of those characters were very flat and one note throughout most of it. I think King actually said that Shelley Duvall's portrayal of Wendy Torrance was the most misogynist thing he has ever seen on screen because basically all she's there to do is scream and be dumb and that's that's taken right out of the words uh, uh, of Stephen King himself like he thought that that was a really insulting portrayal of a woman in peril you know and Mm. you could see the flip side where they tried to create a more uh, stronger version of Wendy Torrance in the miniseries right but people would actually argue that her performance was a little bit too strong and she would have absolutely left Jack Torrance the moment like he broke Danny's arm. Like she was a, a powerful woman that, you know, you didn't screw with. Which is faithful to the book because in the first section of the book, when that incident happens, that's the inciting incident for the story. She wanted to divorce Jack Torrance right then and there. And their marriage was on the brink of falling apart. But Jack was like, let's give it another week. The week will be at the overlook and then we can revisit it, you know, when it's time after a week. So even in the book, 
Wendy is a strong character. She's definitely not two-dimensional. And I had those vibes when I was watching the film. Like, even though it's a amazing movie, Wendy Torrance is very flat. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, I think, like Scott said earlier, King was probably most upset with how personal he made the story. And, you know, if Wendy was modeled after his wife and he kind of wrote the strong character and then saw the movie and she was kind of just this weak flailing damsel you know that's probably pretty aggravating it's <laughs> very true yeah i mean not every character can be dynamic yeah. you gotta have you know flat characters but yeah i would i would be pretty mad if i was stephen king be like i wrote this amazing character and you just like watered it down it's like what the yeah. heck man so a lot of elements to why stephen king was rightfully peeved at this adaptation. <laughs> but as a movie, this film is absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. Agreed. But that's it for this time on Syndicate. We hope you enjoyed yourself. We've been talking about The Shining by Stanley Kubrick. Please check it out where it is available. And now I'd like to take a moment to thank my guests, Kara and Scott, for coming on to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it's been a real honor. Like, I could talk about Stanley Kubrick and The Shining all day long. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about with this film. And we just scratched the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this film. And I'm glad to have you two on to do that. Oh, we're honored to be here. If you'd like to hear more of Karen Scott on At The Movies podcast, please check them out where fine podcasts are available. Or follow them on Instagram at themovies.podcast. But if you'd like to keep this conversation going, please add us on your favorite social media platform at Syndicate, that is C-I-N-E-D-I-C-A-T-E, -E, Syndicate, on Instagram, Twitter, Clubhouse, Facebook, and Letterboxd. Have questions or film recommendations? Please email us at info at syndicate.com or visit the website syndicate.com. And until next time, stop that scroll and spend more time watching. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.